welcome to this episode of the Journal of Neuro-Ophthalmology podcast. I'm Dr. Prem Subramanian, the online content editor for the journal, and I am joined today by Dr. Jonathan Trobe, who is professor of ophthalmology and neurology at the Kellogg Eye Center of the University of Michigan. Dr. Trobe was the 2010 Hoyt Lecturer at the American Academy of Ophthalmology. His lecture was entitled Papilledema, the Vexing Issues, and was published in the June issue of the Journal of Neuro-Ophthalmology. Uh, Dr. Trobe, thank you very much for joining us today. And I'd like to begin by asking you uh, about one aspect of papilledema you described in your lecture, specifically the issue of toxic substances being considered at one time but never been found. And as you know, recent data from Killer and Associates suggests that CSF may not circulate freely around the optic nerves and that potentially neurotoxic substances may accumulate. What role, if any, do you think this finding has in the papilledema we see commonly? Well, I, I don't think really any. Uh, I, I respect the uh, work of Dr. Killer, but I, I just uh, don't think that the papilledema that we see as neuro-ophthalmologists has a toxic basis. Toxic optic neuropathy certainly does not have any of the clinical characteristics that papilledema has. You don't see this kind of arrest of axoplasmic flow nearly to the degree that you, you do in papilledema. And I, I think we have plenty of other explanations for the mechanism. I, I, I think that this is a pressure phenomenon, and it's either direct pressure on, on the optic nerve or pressure on the blood vessels that nourish the nerve. I, I suppose we can't absolutely prove that, but it seems a more likely candidate to me. In mentioning the idea of ischemia, as the cause of vision loss and papilledema, you mentioned choroidal steel in your lecture and in your paper as a contributing factor. And can you talk a little bit about your clinical experience with this phenomenon, how common you think it might be, and if you think there's any experimental evidence that might point to choroidal ischemia being involved in papilledema and vision loss? I'm not aware of any experimental support for this hypothesis which I, I think depends on our having more refined techniques of ocular perfusion studies. But I think it is an interesting hypothesis, and, and here's why. Uh, we, we've all uh, been uh, intrigued by the idea that, that the only enduring neurologic deficit in increased intracranial pressure is uh, vision loss from papilledema, uh, and that is curious. The other place uh, in our practices where this happens is in systemic hypotension where um, very often the, the rest of the brain seems to escape, but the optic nerves are damaged uh, and when you get this uh, hypotensive ischemic optic neuropathy. So I reasoned that uh, maybe there's something uh, in common here and perhaps what's in common here is an anatomic let's say, uh, defect uh, in which the uh, optic nerve circulation is having to compete unfavorably with the choroidal circulation, which we know is a huge drain uh, because of the very high metabolic rate uh, of, of, of visual transduction and the need for high blood flow to carry off the heat that's generated by that. So we, we, we have plenty of anatomic evidence that the choroidal circulation is, is luxuriant. Whereas the optic nerve circulation, we all know, uh, at least uh, right there at the, uh, at the nerve head in the post-laminar and laminar regions, is uh, rather flimsy. So in 
sets up about whether uh, hypotension, in the case of uh, systemic hypotension, uh, results in loss of, of, of blood flow to the optic nerve, and in increased intracranial pressure, whether pressure at the junction of the optic nerve and the globe uh, causes the same problem. And, and that's what I call the choroidal steel. Whether that's what goes on uh, is, is anybody's guess. Now, clinicians are always looking for early reliable signs of vision loss in papilledema. Is it the infranasal visual field loss, further blind spot enlargement, or something else that prompts you to escalate care and become more aggressive in your management of the underlying disease? You know, Prem, I don't think I have anything special here to contribute on this. I probably do what you do and what everybody else does. You look for uh, an increase in symptoms, and the symptoms um, uh, are transient obscurations of vision, uh, uh, headache, and particularly intrascapular pain, but also one that I have noticed uh, more and more as time has gone on, that patients will describe a kind of a corona of brightness in the periphery of their field of vision or the mid-periphery, and that has often been to me a clue that probably they are not getting, you know, what I said earlier, fusion of that optic nerve, and uh, that causes me a worry. Obviously, I will also look at the optic disc and see if it's showing more signs of, of swelling. And then, as you mentioned, the visual fields, uh, it is curious that the inferior nasal nerve fiber bundle defects are the ones that show up when the optic nerve is getting in trouble. I'm not sure about the increase in the blind spot. I think that's uh, that's going to go along with an, an increase in the swelling of the of the of the of disc, and may not be quite as sensitive a measure of reducing uh, optic nerve function. But I, I use the combination of those things. I'm going to make one other comment, and that's one that I made in the Hoyt lecture, and and that is that. You know, in my practice, most of the patients who need aggressive treatment for idiopathic intracranial hypertension uh, are those who, pre who present with severe loss already or severe optic disc edema. I have very few patients in whom I needed, uh, for example, a surgical intervention uh, long after they came in under my care. Uh, and that's, I think, because either the disease uh, spontaneously improves or, more likely, uh, acetazolamide is effective. So it is curious that, um, you know, they just don't seem to do worse. They all seem to do better. Now, there are some people who don't do well, but they seem to be, have, have done poorly at the outset. Very interesting. Well, maybe we'll understand more about the reasons of why people develop the high ICP and the papilledema in the first place, perhaps in part based on the work that you've done. Thank you again for sharing your thoughts with us today and for your Hoyt lecture. Very welcome. Thank you. This podcast represents the copyrighted content of the North American Neuro-Ophthalmology Society. All views expressed in this podcast represent the opinions of the participants. It does not necessarily reflect the views of the society. To find out more about NANOS and its journal, the Journal of Neuro-Ophthalmology, please visit www.nanosweb.org.